Bibles and turn with me this morning to the book of Acts, chapter number 8. The book of Acts, chapter number 8. We're going to begin reading in just a moment in verse number 26, reading through verse 40 of Acts, chapter 8. This is the final Sunday in our focus on our 40 days of prayer and fasting. We have taken four of these Sundays to emphasize the four themes that hold together that prayer booklet. Uh, four uh, goals that we have had in this 40 days of drawing near, confident that as we labor to be brought near to Christ, that Christ is pleased to draw near to us. We began by talking about abiding in Christ, and we looked at John 15 together, where Jesus says, I am the true vine, and reveals to us the secret of fruitfulness in the Christian walk is abiding in Jesus. Indeed, this is the goal of our life as followers of Christ, that we would abide in him and that he would abide in us. The sweetness of knowing Jesus, the preciousness of that closeness and fellowship with him, it's, it's just, it's at the heart of, of who we are. We talked in our second week together about the critical importance of connecting, connecting with the local church, connecting even within the local church with smaller groups of believers for accountability and encouragement and discipleship. And we've taken note along the way that we've learned the hard way through isolation and quarantine how critically important connecting is to humanity in general, but especially within the church, that love and good works would be stirred in our heart that we might serve King Jesus faithfully with all of our lives. So we talked about abiding, and we talked about connecting, and last week we talked about serving, about the fact that every believer in Jesus has been uniquely and supernaturally gifted, that God has given you a gift, and that it is our responsibility to steward or to manage well the gifts that have been entrusted to us by actively using those gifts within the context of the local church. This week, in our fourth and, and final week together in this series, I want to talk to you about sharing. And I want us to look, sharing the gospel specifically, and I, and I want us to look at an example of an ordinary exchange between ordinary men that results in an extraordinary outcome because of the disciples' faithfulness to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are you ready? Let's stand together out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 26. Here's what God's word says. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, get up and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert road. So he got up and went. There was an Ethiopian man, a eunuch and high official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to worship in Jerusalem and was sitting in his chariot on his way home, reading the prophet Isaiah aloud. The spirit told Philip, go and join that chariot. When Philip ran up to it, he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? How can I, he said, unless someone guides me. So he invited Philip to come up and to sit with him. Now the scripture passage he was reading was this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb is silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who will describe his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch replied to Philip, I ask you, who is the prophet saying this about himself or another person? 
So Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus, beginning from that scripture. As they were traveling down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, there's water. What would keep me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. When they came up from the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch didn't see him any longer. But he went on his way rejoicing. And Philip appeared in Azotus, and as he was traveling and evangelizing all the towns, until he came to Caesarea, may the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. So when was the last time that you sat down with an individual, maybe in a passing conversation, maybe in a more formal or serious setting, and simply said to them that God has loved the world so much that he sent his only son, that he would live without sin, that the righteous requirement of God would be met by his son, that he would die as our substitute on the cross, he was buried in a borrowed grave and rose again. And the result of that great gospel story is that by faith in him, we may be credited with his righteousness because he has been charged with our sin. When was the last time you shared with a lost person how it is that they could be saved from their sin? So here's how it is, right? Accountants crunch numbers. Coaches coach games, lawyers practice law, doctors practice medicine, engineers drive trains, plumbers fix pipe, carpenters drive nails, and Christians share the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, all right. It is that essential to who we are as followers of Jesus that we be bearers of the good news of the gospel wherever we go. Now, there are times, I think, when we sort of differentiate in our mind between regular Christianity and those folks who are always sharing the gospel, kind of Christianity 101 and then 400 level more advanced Christian folk up here. But I want you to know that that distinction exists nowhere in the New Testament. This man leaves rejoicing and presumably leaves going to tell others about the gospel. Countless other examples, Mark 5, and the demon-possessed man who went and told all in the region of Gadara of his salvation in Jesus. The Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4 who went back and reported, there is a man who's told me of all I've ever done. I've believed on him for salvation. And many others came to faith in Jesus as a result of her brand new faith in Christ. This distinction does not exist. Everywhere there are believers who have been touched by the power of the gospel. There is a want, a compulsion to share with others of what Jesus has done in us. Even as the disciples are charged early in the book of Acts, you must no longer preach the name of Jesus. They insisted to the authorities, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and experienced in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We cannot be kept back from telling others of what Jesus has done in our life. And so it must be for us as well. But the devil is clever at busying us about things of very little importance whatsoever. 
It is, it is a heartbreaking thing. It is a sad thing. It is a sinful thing that we speak so freely about the trivial, nonsensical, and meaningless things of this world, often with greater enthusiasm than we speak of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what I want us to see in this passage, and I think it gives us a good example is an ordinary man. This is not an apostle, right? This is Philip, one of those deacons called to serve the church in Acts chapter 6. He's just a layman within the church, just a regular brother like me, a regular guy like many of you here this morning. Not an apostle with that unique set of gifts and abilities. Here is just a normal follower of Jesus, faithfully discharging his responsibility as a follower of Jesus, sharing with others about what Jesus had done for him, about who Jesus is and the promise and the power of the resurrection. And I want to offer you just quickly five observations concerning sharing the gospel or evangelism from the passage that is before us. Look to verse 26. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, Get up and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert road. So he got up and went. There was an Ethiopian man, a eunuch and high official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her entire treasury. He'd come to worship in Jerusalem and was sitting in his chariot on his way home, reading the prophet Isaiah aloud. And the spirit told Philip, go and join that chariot. There are times when we're sensitive to the leadership of the Holy Spirit, seasons of drawing near when God is ever close, when with the kind of clarity that Philip enjoys, God points us to a specific place or a specific person to share with them the message of the gospel. Maybe you've experienced this. There are times in our journey when Jesus says by the Spirit, go to that place and share with that person. They're rare. It's not common that we have that kind of clarity, that kind of conviction that it's that place and that person that God has called us to, but occasionally it happens. Maybe you've experienced that yourself. Here the Spirit says to Philip, go down to the road that leads from Jerusalem to Gaza, the desert road, and when Philip finds himself on the desert road, God says, go to that chariot and share with that man the message of the gospel. More commonly, it is that God calls us and leads us by the Spirit to go and to share in general. We don't need the kind of clarity that Philip enjoyed, go to that road and go to that person at that place and that time, to know by the leadership of the Spirit this morning that God has called us to go and to share with others the message of the gospel. It seems to me that there is a special closeness, a special blessing that God shows us, and I don't intend any of the baggage that can come with that language, that God shows when we go to share the gospel with other people. Jesus said to the disciples, don't worry when you come before kings and princes to attest to the truthfulness of the gospel, for I will give you the words in that moment. I believe an indication that God intends by his spirit to draw ever close in those moments of gospel exchange to give us the words he'd have us to speak. And so often we stumble through and we don't feel as though coming away from those encounters that we've done the best job that we could have done in explaining the truth of the gospel and somehow some way by the work of God's spirit the seed is planted and often springs forth in, abun in an abundance of fruit God God works through our faithfulness in evangelism 
What I want you to observe in this first section, verses 26 through 29, is that sharing the gospel is always a spirit-led effort. When you go and tell others about the message of the gospel, that Jesus lived without sin, that he died as our substitute, that he rose again the third day, and that he invites all to believe in him, God attends by the Spirit your efforts at communicating that message. Here we have a specific scenario where Philip is instructed, go to this place and go to this person. But all of us have the general call of God on our life. Our ability to understand the Great Commission is the result of the work of the Spirit in our life. No man can discern the spiritual things in his natural person exclusively. God reveals by his Spirit the high call of Great Commission evangelism and attends our efforts that the world would know that Jesus Christ is King. Sharing the gospel is always a spirit-led endeavor. One of the reasons that sharing the gospel is one of the themes of our 40 days of prayer and fasting is because I really regard evangelism or sharing the gospel as a spiritual discipline that is effective for drawing near to Jesus. Never do I feel closer to the Lord than when I am actively sharing the gospel with lost people in my life. This is a discipline, a means of drawing near to God. The goal of 40 days of prayer and fasting is to draw near that God might draw near to us. Brothers and sisters, if you want to know the fullness of the Spirit, if you want to know a drawing near, communicate the message of the gospel to the lost around you. I'm, I'm convinced that sharing the gospel is always a spirit-led endeavor, whether it be the kind of specific thing that Philip is called to in our passage or the more general embrace of God's call on our life to share with others of the beauty of the gospel. Now look at verse 30. The Bible says here, Philip, having heard the call of God, having received a, a, a direction from the Spirit, Philip ran up to it, ran up to his chariot. He heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? Now, what impresses me about this statement is that Philip runs to the chariot. So the scenario is this. Philip is down on the desert road traveling by sandal, and he's walking along the desert road, and there's the chariot. There's the Ethiopian eunuch that God has providentially arranged for Philip to share the gospel with. A chariot would travel a little faster than a pair of sandals would ordinarily, and so Philip, at the direction of the Spirit, begins to trot a little to keep pace with the chariot, and conversation ensues here in the passage. This is, these are not the kind of circumstances under which you would ordinarily begin a gospel conversation, Right? There's, there's something rather undignified about conversation while you're running anyway. If you're a runner or an exerciser in general, th th you don't typically look good running, right? It's not typically easy to share meaningful conversation when you're running or on the treadmill, God forbid. Don't you love it when people talk to you when you're on the treadmill? And this is exactly the thing that Philip experiences here in the passage. He, he is trotting alongside the chariot, letting nothing get in his way of communicating the message of the gospel to this Ethiopian eunuch, engaging him in conversation. He says to him, do you understand what you're reading? And he's jogging along, prepared to give an exegetical explanation of Isaiah 53. That's the kind of thing that we would ordinarily not get over. 
Like if there's a person in your life you want to share the gospel with and you're on the way home this afternoon and they're jogging, you will say to yourself, mark it down, well, they're busy. Or, or you see them about some other activity that would limit your ability to communicate well with them. So often that can be a hindrance to our want to communicate the gospel in that setting. But nothing would stand between Philip and sharing the gospel with the man on that chariot. Here's the second thing I want you to observe. Sharing the gospel always involves an obedient disciple. This is God's means of getting the message of the gospel to the end of the earth. Not a great miracle, not a bolt from the blue, not these great acts that we often associate with God's activity in the world. God's means of getting the gospel to the ends of the earth are me and you. In ordinary settings, in ordinary conversations, simply telling the world of what Jesus has done in our life and what by the power of the gospel he can do in theirs. Now, I want you to think for just a moment about the, the flow of the book of Acts. And maybe you're familiar with Acts, but it goes like this. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus is there, the resurrected Jesus is there with the disciples. And he says to them in Acts chapter 1 and verse number 8, you will receive the power of the Holy Spirit, and when the Spirit has come upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. So he's describing here these concentric circles of influence in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, that is the districts that surround the city of Jerusalem, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, what has happened in Acts chapters 1 through 7 is that the gospel has begun to penetrate the city of Jerusalem. In fact, a great number of people have come to faith in Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 2, 3,000 believe as the miracle of fiery tongues setting on the disciples and their ability to preach in a multitude of languages brought about great conversion in the city of Jerusalem. 3,000 believe. In Acts chapter 3, there's a man born lame lying at the beautiful gate and entrance to the temple. Peter and John look at him and say, look at us. Silver and gold we have not, but what we have we give in the name of the Lord Jesus. Arise and walk. That man believes and many other believes as the gospel is preached at Solomon's portico. Another 5,000 people come to faith in Jesus. The gospel is beating back the darkness in the city of Jerusalem. In the chapters that follow, the gospel begins to make its way out of the city of Jerusalem and into the greater districts of Judea and Samaria. Many are coming to faith in Jesus. But even early in the history of the church, the church does what it so often does, and it begins to stagnate. It begins to settle into a place of comfort and perhaps indifference, and, and it will lose focus. Mission drift begins to settle in if the church is not very careful. And so in Acts chapter 8, verse number 1, the Bible says that Saul agreed with putting Stephen to death. Stephen is stoned in Acts chapter 7. And on that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. However, Saul was ravaging the church would enter house after house and drag men off, men and women off, and put them into prison. Here, here's what I want you to see. That God will go to great lengths. This is, in my estimation, a divinely ordained persecution that begins to break out in Judea and Samaria. 
to awaken the church from their indifference and their apathy and to ensure that the gospel gets not just to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, but to the uttermost parts of the earth. God begins to do a great work to disperse the church. And I want you to know this morning that God will often go to great lengths to stir faithful obedience to the Great Commission in his church and even within his people. The sharing of the gospel must by necessity involve the faithful obedience of followers of Jesus Christ. Philip ran to the chariot. Now look to what happens in verse number 31. The Ethiopian eunuch said, How can I, how can I understand what I'm reading unless someone guides me? And so he invited Philip to come up and to sit with him. Now most people don't share the gospel because they're afraid of how they'll be received it's that first sentence right it's it's that do you know jesus do you have a relationship with christ it's it's that initial engagement in conversation that's the hurdle that many just won't get over because of the fear of how we might be received and listen you might get rocks kicked at you. You might get called ugly names. I've seen all of that, right? But, but many times, especially in a culture that is relatively friendly to faith in Jesus, whether they understand what that means or looks like or not, many times what you'll discover as you go forth sharing the gospel is that God has gone before you. Here, Philip begins to engage this Ethiopian eunuch, and what he gets is not resistance. What he gets is not indifference. What he gets is not persecution or fear or hatred or animus or hostility. What he gets is a warm greeting. He says, how can I understand the word of God unless someone helps me, someone explains, and he invites him to join? Until now, can you imagine Philip is loping along beside the chariot? Can you imagine how that conversation would have sounded? bumping up and down, and he invites him to join him on the chariot and explain to him what it is that he's reading. When we're faithful to share, we often discover that God has gone before us like God went in the hornets and by the power of his spirit before the army of Israel as they took the promised land. So often as we go forward confessing faith in Jesus and engaging others with the message of the gospel, we discover quite quickly that God has gone before us, readying the hearts of those who will hear and receive the message of the gospel gladly. Look now to verses 32 and following. The Bible says here that the scripture, scripture passage the Ethiopian was reading was this, and it's a citation from Isaiah chapter 53. Now, remember that we're here in conversation with Philip, a deacon, and an Ethiopian eunuch. Now, there's a couple of things about this encounter that make it of special interest in the book of Acts. Number one, in the Greco-Roman mind, Ethiopia was the ends of the earth. Now, Acts has already informed us, Luke has already informed us, Jesus has instructed us that it is his intention that the gospel would go from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. This is the first indication in the book of Acts that God would, by the power of his spirit, see through what he promised he would through the witness of the Holy Spirit and the faithful obedience of his people. But furthermore, this man is a eunuch. That is, he is, under, he is under the mastery of, he is a servant to Candace, 
queen of the Ethiopians, and the status of a slave or a eunuch with relatively little hope of earthly prosperity position or, or even a place of significance in his society or any society. In a patriarchal society where the bearing of children was a central part of your identity, this man as a eunuch had been robbed of that possibility. Now, it's fascinating to me the passage that he's drawn to in Isaiah chapter 53. It comes within the context of that same passage from Isaiah that we looked at on the Sunday night of our GIC, if you were with us. Where in Isaiah chapter 56, there is the promise of a coming Messiah, the promise of Jesus' coming, when he would show favor and bless the eunuch with greater glory and honor than many sons or daughters. In other words, what the eunuch could not find in his earthly experience, God would grant by faith in the Christ who was to come. Isaiah 53 is a part of that same section or segment of the prophet Isaiah. Here's what it said. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb is silent before its shearer, so he doesn't open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who will describe his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. Now here in verse 32, he was led like a sheep to the slaughter as a lamb is silent before his shear, so he does not open his mouth. There is reference to the suffering and humiliation of Jesus Christ. Like a lamb led to slaughter, Jesus often refused in that mock trial before his crucifixion to answer those who brought charges against him. Before Herod, he opened not his mouth like a sheep led to slaughter, or before the shearer, he does not open his mouth. In verse 33, the Bible says, in his humiliation, justice was denied him, a direct reference to the suffering, uh, sacrificial, substitutionary death that Jesus would endure at the cross. He is humiliated. He is sacrificed there on the cross. But look at what it said next, the question in the middle of verse 33, who will describe his generation? I wonder if the eunuch wasn't attracted to that particular line, curious about what was being described there. In the context of Isaiah, outside, apart from our understanding of what happens in Jesus through his death and burial and resurrection, it seems to be a statement of agony, of, of grief of frustration that, that this man, for all of his service, for the suffering that he endures, for what he provides for us by his sacrifices, robbed of a heritage, robbed of an ancestry, robbed of the generations that would have come after him, bearing forth his name. Who can describe his generation in the immediate context of Isaiah seems to be a statement of agony and frustration. This man will have no ancestry because he lives in humiliation and dies in an act of grace injustice but through the lens of the resurrection of Jesus the agony of Isaiah 53 is turned to great celebration as what we begin to realize is that the generations cannot be described for they are innumerable there's a multitude of sons and daughters who are attached to Christ by adoption through the gospel of Jesus Christ what was great grief was turned to great praise because of the gospel now, Philip, with this new perspective, through the lens of the death and resurrection of Jesus, begins to explain to the eunuch what it is that Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 56 and all of the scriptures are saying about the Christ who was to come. 
He asked in verse 34, who is the prophet saying this about himself or another person? He just doesn't understand what the scripture says. And Philip proceeded in verse 35 to tell him the good news about Jesus beginning from that scripture. Now, when I was coming into my seminary training and going through all of those processes, especially as a graduate student, I think the theological world was just beginning to grapple with what it looked like to share the gospel in a postmodern, post-Christian, post-truth context. Now, if you don't know what postmodern is, don't sweat it. No one else does either. It basically means that, that everything means nothing because everything means everything depending on what you want it to mean at a given moment. And if everything means everything, then everything means nothing. That is postmodernism in a nutshell. If you're confused, you're in good company. And what would often be said to us, what we would often be encouraged to do was, in evangelism, share our personal testimony, because in a postmodern culture or context, you cannot debate with, you cannot push back on what a person's individual experience is. That's why people talk about my truth and your truth. There is just the truth. That's about as silly as anything I've ever heard. But we were encouraged, and on some level, in a healthy way, encouraged to share our experience of coming to faith in Jesus as a means of communicating the gospel. Now, that is a great tool, a great technique for communicating the gospel, but often we bordered on, and we still do, saying that that is our primary way of communicating the gospel in a postmodern context, in our cultural context. But I want you to know that your experience is not inerrant. Your experience is not infallible. Your experience is not all-sufficient, but the Word of God is. As Philip shared the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he never lets himself get far from the Word of God. And here's what I want you to see. This is observation number four. The message we share must always be informed by the Word of God. I will freely admit that sometimes personal testimonies scare me because sometimes I hear personal testimonies that bear little resemblance whatsoever to what the Bible describes as the message of the gospel and the experience of conversion that we are to undergo by faith in Jesus Christ. You'll never have that issue with a biblical text. Always stay close to the word of God in communicating the gospel. You can't go wrong with God's word. And this doesn't have to be a difficult thing. It doesn't have to be a, a thing that's hard for you. Sometimes it's as simple as a little pocket-sized New Testament. And you don't have to memorize a bunch of Scripture. I remember one of the most helpful, encouraging things that I ever learned as a new believer in sharing the gospel came from the little book, Share Jesus Without Fear. Do you all remember that? And you learned in, in that little book, one of the techniques that you were able to pick up on was you memorized the first verse, the first reference of the first verse in the Romans road, Romans 3, 23, all of sin and come short of the glory of God. And you turn to that page and allow that the person you're sharing with can read that verse for themselves. I think that's an effective method, by the way. Let them see for themselves. There has to be some authority outside of us, some authority outside of me, some authority outside of you that attests to the truthfulness of the gospel. Frankly, I don't care what you think. 
nor should anyone else think what we think. There is an attestation to the truthfulness of the gospel that stands outside of us. It is the word of God. Give them the opportunity to read for themselves what the Bible says. And then at the top of that page, you would write your next scripture reference, Romans 6, 23. And you would walk yourself with this cheat code, right? through the Roman road so that there wasn't this great uh, memorization process that had to take place. Now, in reality, you have the ability to memorize that. But you don't, you don't have to. There is a cheat code for evangelism, right? You just mark them down in the margin of your Bible. When sharing the message of the gospel, especially in a postmodern context, be careful to stay close to the Word of God. It is absolutely true. Now, there's a fifth and final observation I want us to make together in verses 36 and 40. Read there in verse 36. The Bible says, as they were traveling down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, there's water. What would keep me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Then he ordered the chariot to stop. Both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch didn't see him any longer. But he went on his way rejoicing. And Philip appeared in Azotus, and he was traveling and evangelizing all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This Ethiopian eunuch comes to faith in Jesus, the miracle the miracle of regeneration happens in this Ethiopian's life. The miracle of new birth. The miracle of conversion. This man returns to Ethiopia changed. He left there dead in sins and trespasses, but he got back to town alive by faith in Christ Jesus. He goes back to Ethiopia and begins to sow the seed of the gospel there. Something so powerful began to unfold in Ethiopia in the first century that there is still a strong church that stands in northwest, northeast Africa today because of the early sowing of the gospel seed, presumably begun here in Acts chapter 8. What a remarkable thing that is. Philip presses on about evangelizing the towns that he comes to until he settles into the city of Caesarea. Philip is a trailblazer for the apostle Peter in his ministry. Philip's daughters who prophesy appear in Acts chapter 21. It's in the city of Caesarea that the first Gentile is baptized as Cornelius comes to faith. In Acts chapter 11, Peter taking there the message of the gospel. Philip plays a critical role in the unfolding of God's kingdom, the unfolding of God's plan for the world's redemption, calling a people unto himself. Here we have ordinary people playing ordinary parts. And this is what I want you to see, and this is the beauty of what God's plan is for us. This is the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ordinary obedience is often God's means of producing extraordinary outcomes. We are here this morning on the shoulders of Philip's faithful obedience in sharing the gospel. We are here this morning on the shoulders of an Ethiopian eunuch's faithful testimony to the truth of the gospel even in Northeast Africa. We are here this morning on the shoulders of generation after generation after generation of God-called men and women washed in the blood of the Lamb who have faithfully discharged the responsibility given us by the Great Commission ordinary people, ordinary obedience, but an extraordinary God 
working out extraordinary outcomes from the normal average lives of normal average people like me and you. We, we love to think in terms of the miraculous, right? There's a, there's a great misconception even about the story of redemption in the Bible. You, you realize miracles are limited to relatively brief periods of time in human history. There are the miracles that happen under the ministry of Moses and Joshua, two generations. There are the miracles that happen under the ministry of Elijah and Elisha, two generations. There are the miracles that happen under Jesus and the apostles, a single generation. Everything else that God does throughout redemptive history, he does through ordinary means, through ordinary people, working extraordinary outcomes through the power of his Holy Spirit. If you're, if you're waiting for this supernatural experience, this bolt from the blue, these cold chills, hair standing on end, writing on the wall, some miracle to be performed before you, this is, this is, that's not normal, right? Surely God has the power. I'm not limiting what God can do. He can do whatever he wants to. He's God. That comes with the job. But what I'm telling you is this, that God's plan for evangelizing the world are Jimmy's and Joe's just like you and just like me. What God has called us to do is to faithfully share the message of the gospel with everyone we can until he calls us home. And one day the gospel makes its way to the uttermost parts of the earth, every tribe and tongue and nation having received the message of the gospel. Jesus comes to cleanse and to claim his church forevermore. Do you know him? Do you remember where you were and what it was like when God saved you? The want that you had to share with others of what Jesus had so powerfully done in your life? God's reminded me in recent days through his word and just experience and sharing with people and conversations and various other ways that often when we gather, in fact, I'm pretty convinced all of the time when we gather that, that there are those within our assembly who just don't have a saving relationship with Jesus. And, and maybe this morning your lack of passion for evangelism is the direct result of the absence of the gospel in your life. Maybe the reason that you're not passionate about telling others that the bow of God's wrath is bent against us and there is only shelter in Jesus. Maybe the reason that you're indifferent about pointing out to those around you that we are drowning in a sea of sin and God's judgment against us and Jesus is the only lifeboat. Maybe the reason you're apathetic about telling others about the message of the gospel it's because you've not been touched by the power of the gospel. Do you know him? Do you love Jesus? Could you honestly say that he's the Lord of your life? I know that there's grace and there's mercy and there's forgiveness and there's compassion with Jesus. There's no question about that. And we certainly can't debate the fact that as Christian people, we often go astray. We are frail and feeble and broken. And frankly, we're just kind of knuckleheads sometimes when it comes to walking with Jesus. 
But there can be no mistaking that the Christian life ought to bear the marks of Christian faith, faithfulness to God, laboring to walk faithfully with Jesus. Do you know him? Is there a burning passion in your heart to tell others of what Jesus has done for you and what by the power of the gospel he can do for them? Let's bow and pray. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth and for the chance to meet together. God, we've, we've gathered here safely without fear for persecution or any disruption to our lives. And God, I, I pray that, that that comfort sometimes serves to cause us to fall off to sleep, to slumber in the responsibilities that you've given us. And Lord, I, I, I tremble at what you do in Acts 8 and 1 and 2. As persecution comes on the church to see to it that the church be awakened to its task. God, I pray that this morning by the work of your spirit, you would take us by the collar and shake us awake. Remind us of who we are in Jesus. Charge us, set within our heart a boldness and a passion for gospel advancement. God, that we couldn't resist that, that so much of our life that takes priority over gospel advancing work, Lord, could somehow be folded into this chief responsibility that we would see our work, our play, our hobbies, our interests, our daily activities as a means to sharing the gospel with others, not an obstacle to sharing. I pray, God, that you would forgive us of our sin, that you would help us today to determine how it is that we can best involve ourselves in what you intend to do in our Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. I pray, God, that you would forgive us of our indifference, help us to understand our obligation and responsibility as a watchman on a wall. Help us, Lord, to call down to a lost and dying world about us that judgment is to come, but there is, there is hope in Jesus. Help us to know how to best communicate in a way that resonates with the world around us, that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and that no man comes to the Father except through him. Help us to say and to insist upon the reality that Jesus is the only name given among men whereby we must be saved. Help us to say to the world around us that the end of all things is near, that we must hasten to the cross where one bled and died for our sin and rose again the third day, that we might have the newness of life. God, I pray that in these next moments and maybe in the days ahead through the faithful evangelism of your people, that you'd be pleased to awaken the dead to life. That this morning would be a monumental morning for someone here when they would hear and believe the gospel for salvation. God, work among us, we pray. Save some. God, as we go, I pray that you would open those doors of opportunity that we could share with others of what you've done for us. We ask it in Jesus' name.